You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 125, The Second Battle of Trenton. We last left the Continental Army, having pulled off a surprise victory at Trenton, capturing the Hessian garrison there, and then retreating back to Pennsylvania, after which time the leadership almost immediately decided to go back to New Jersey again and see if they could follow up on their victory. As Washington attempted to build on his victory at Trenton, the British in New York had to decide how to react to the Trenton raid. Now, I've been covering quite a bit of detail over the last few episodes, so it's important to remember that despite there being several weeks of discussions here, it's really only been about two weeks since General Howe had secured New Jersey in mid-December, organized the outposts, and returned to New York City to sit out the cold winter with good wine, a fire, and his mistress. Hessian Colonel von Dunup had retreated from Mount Holly on the night of December 26, moving his force of Hessians toward Princeton and Brunswick. He also collected some of the Hessians who had escaped capture at Trenton during his march. Von Dunup sent a messenger to Brunswick with news of the capture of Trenton. From there, British General James Grant, who had served as overall commander of the force in New Jersey, sent an express rider to New York City to inform General Howe. Some of the reports suggested that the Americans had invaded New Jersey with as many as 20,000 men. In truth, there were maybe at this point five or 6,000 combined total American soldiers in the state, if you're counting all the men that Washington brought over, as well as the men who crossed under General Cadwallader and some militia that were raised locally. But the bulk of these thousands of soldiers were relatively inexperienced militia. When Howe received word on December 27th that the Americans had attacked Trenton the day before and had taken the Hessian garrison there prisoner, he knew that his work was not done for the year. Howe had no intention of marching out into the snow himself, though. Instead, he called on his most able field officer still in New York. General Lord Cornwallis had already stowed his bags aboard the HMS Bristol. He was looking forward to his return to England for the winter and to be with his sick wife. Instead, General Howe canceled his leave and ordered him back to New Jersey. Cornwallis would take his army to Brunswick, then on to Princeton, leaking up with General Grant and the other British and Hessian forces already in New Jersey. To meet the British column preparing to advance to Trenton, the Americans had retaken the town of Trenton. The first of Washington troops re-entered the town on the afternoon of December 29th, three days after they had first raided and then returned to Pennsylvania. Washington continued to move men across the river that night 
as well as the 30th and 31st. Washington personally crossed on the morning of December 30th and joined his men in Trenton later that day. Colonel Joseph Reed was already in Trenton on the 29th when the first soldiers arrived. He had been with Colonel Cadwallader's militia, who had crossed on the 27th and made their way from Burlington to Trenton a day earlier. Reed began deploying troops almost immediately in pursuit of Colonel von Donop's Hessians, who were by this time mostly north of Trenton, but perhaps not entirely secured and connected with reinforcements. It wasn't until the following day, December 30th, that the bulk of von Donop's army reached Princeton and joined up with General Alexander Leslie's regulars. That same day, Reed personally rode out near Princeton to scout the town and gather intelligence about the enemy position. You may remember that Colonel Reed was Washington's personal aide, the man that the two had had a falling out with over General Lee. Reed had been a Philadelphia lawyer before the war, but before he was a Philadelphia lawyer, he had grown up in the Princeton area, so he knew the back roads and the geography of South Jersey very well. Other soldiers under Colonel Cadwallader had already occupied Allentown, where von Donop's Hessians had encamped the day before. In addition to looking for Hessians, some of whom were hiding in farmhouses in the area, the Continentals also rounded up Tories who had given aid to the enemy during British occupation. As Washington committed the Continental Army to New Jersey, he was not confident that he could hold it against what the British might throw at him. He kept most of the Army's baggage in Newtown, Pennsylvania, and he left General Lord Sterling in command of the baggage. Sterling had participated in the first crossing and had comported himself well, but he fell ill under the harsh conditions and was no condition to participate in the second crossing. He was left in command of the other soldiers who were also too sick to remain on active duty, but not sick enough that they had to be sent to Philadelphia for care. Washington also organized boats at each of the various ferry crossings lest the army be forced to make a hasty retreat in the face of overwhelming force. Some of the Continental officers thought that they should go on the offensive immediately and attack Princeton. Washington, however, opted to occupy Trenton again and await the British response there. Like the Hessians before them, the Americans saw little point in trying to fortify the town itself. There were no natural barriers or defensive positions for any sort of siege. Washington took up residence in a building downtown, but the Americans planned to meet the British on the hill just below town across Assunpink Creek. The hill, with the creek on one flank and the woods on the other, provided a defensible position for a frontal assault. On the other hand, if the enemy wanted to work his way around that hill and hit them from the back, the defenders would be in big trouble. The narrow bridge provided the main avenue of retreat, and that could be easily cut off by the enemy. To avoid such a trap, Washington deployed soldiers all over the region. He sent cavalry patrols up all major and minor roads looking for signs of the enemy. He personally questioned some captured enemy deserters and prisoners. Word spread that he would pay hard money for any tips or any other helpful information about the enemy. He also deployed soldiers, usually with artillery, 
at any fords where the enemy might potentially cross. It took Lord Cornwallis a couple days in New York City to assemble his forces who were camped in and around the city. He began with a long one-day forced march on New Year's Day, 1777, from New York to Princeton, about 50 miles. Along with the forces already in the colony, Cornwallis had at his disposal a force of about 10,000 regulars and Hessians, as well as thousands of more loyalist militia if needed. About 8,000 of those were concentrated in and around Princeton. After arriving late that evening, Cornwallis assembled his officers for a council of war. He was not much interested in their advice, as much as he was there to give them their orders. He would take the bulk of his army, about 6,000 soldiers, straight down the post road to Trenton, and there he would take on the enemy directly. Others, including Colonel Von Dunup, who had joined Cornwallis at Princeton, recommended two columns in a flanking maneuver so that they could push the Continentals back from two sides. Cornwallis, however, did not want to waste any time. He believed a short, direct assault launched quickly would force the Continentals to scatter or be crushed. He was not going to waste any time. The men would assemble that night and be prepared to march the next morning, January 2nd. Cornwallis had selected the best regiments of the army, a full complement of artillery, including several large 12-pounder cannons, and would rely on an overwhelming force and speed to hit the enemy. At first light, the column began marching, even before some regiments had arrived in Princeton. There would be no delay, they would have to catch up. Colonel von Dunup's Hessians would be given the honor of leading the column. British and Hessian officers and men alike were ready for a fight. Many thought the Christmas raid to be a sleazy tactic by an uncivilized enemy. The Hessians were particularly embarrassed by the loss of Trenton and were more than ready to redeem their reputation. Von Dunup told every man under his command that if they took any American prisoner, they would receive 50 lashes. In other words, there would be no prisoners. All enemy combatants would be put to the sword or bayonet. In preparing to meet the British response, Washington made use of local militia who knew the area well. He also, as I said, relied on numerous patrols to keep track of enemy movements. The Continentals set up outposts between Princeton and Trenton who could keep tabs on the enemy and harass them when they moved. Before Cornwallis even arrived in Princeton, the Americans had begun to engage the enemy there. Washington sent a force of about 1,000 Continentals and militia toward Princeton to engage the enemy and delay its advance. The force included a few small artillery pieces, a few rifle regiments, as well as some of his best infantry companies. The special force fell under the command of General Matthias de Roche-Fermoy. Fermoy was the first French officer to receive a general's commission from the Continental Congress. Unlike later French officers, Fermoy came from Martinique in the West Indies, not France itself. He had presented himself to Congress as a colonel of engineers in the French army. Not doing any background checks, Congress took him at his word and commissioned him a general in November 1776 and sent him off to Washington's army. Fermoy had led a division at the First Battle of Trenton 
and by most accounts had commanded his division reasonably well. On New Year's Eve, the Americans set up a defensive position about halfway between Princeton and Trenton, where the road crossed a small creek known as Eight Mile Run. It was a good defensive position where the terrain made it difficult for a larger force to flank the defenders or storm them in force. On the morning of January 1st, a mixed force of light infantry and Hessian Jaegers under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Robert Abercrombie moved down the road. Their goal was to sweep it for any rebels before the main column advanced the following day. This advance force ran into the American defenders and opened fire. The Americans held their positions and returned fire, resulting in a pitched battle of several hours. The British were forced to bring in reinforcements of British grenadiers before the Americans gave up their position. The British and Hessians took well over a hundred casualties. The American casualties are not well recorded, but an estimated two or three dozen. At least two Americans were captured and summarily shot. This was pursuant to orders to take no prisoners. The battle at Eight Mile Run was a fairly substantial one as far as Revolutionary War skirmishes go, but one that tends to get lost in the larger events of a few days before and after. It also put the British on notice that the Americans were in no mood to scatter and would challenge their advance on Trenton. The British could probably take the town, but they would pay a substantial price in blood. On the evening of January 1st, a few hours after this skirmish, and probably about the same time that General Cornwallis had arrived in Princeton and was holding his own council of war with the British and Hessian officers, General Washington held his own council of war with his generals in Trenton. These included the two division commanders, Generals Greene and Sullivan, as well as Knox, Reed, and St. Clair. Congress had just promoted Henry Knox to general a few days earlier, following the First Battle of Trenton. So congratulations, Henry. You're no longer a colonel. You're now a general. The leaders expected a British advance to come and needed to decide how to respond. One option was to fall back to Crosswicks, where Colonel Cadwallader still had a couple of thousand militia. Another option would be to order Cadwallader's forces to join them in Trenton, or they could keep the two units separate engage the British in Trenton, then fall back and allow Cadwallader's forces to hit the British a second time. After some debate, they decided it would be best to focus both armies in Trenton and face the enemy there. Benjamin Rush, a member of Congress, was visiting the army that night and had just come from Cadwallader's forces. Washington asked his opinions and requested that he carry a note to Cadwallader ordering the army to Trenton. Rush set off that night with Washington's orders, making the seven-mile journey on horseback in about three hours. He arrived at Cadwallader's camp around 1 a.m. and got the general out of bed. After a brief discussion, Cadwallader woke his army, assembled the men, and began a night march to Trenton. The bulk of the army arrived in Trenton shortly after dawn on the morning of January 2nd. The combined Continental Army and militia in New Jersey totaled around 7,000 men, but not all of them were in Trenton. Also on the morning of January 2nd, only hours after Cadwallader's forces had begun marching north to Trenton from Crosswicks, British General Lord Cornwallis's main column of British and Hessians 
began their march south from Princeton toward Trenton. Only a mile or two out of Princeton, the lead column began taking fire. Enemy riflemen attempted to pick off officers or anyone mounted on a horse. They took their shot and then rode off before anyone could get to them. The harassing fire took out a few men, but mostly had the effect of angering and fraying the nerves of the attacking column even further. At least once or twice during this ride, a Hessian attempted to ride out after one of these local horsemen. The horseman led his pursuer into an American ambush who shot and killed the pursuing Hessian. The locals then disappeared before anyone else from the column could attack them. The column spread out over the road when an advance group arrived at Maidenhead, about five miles north of Trenton, they stopped and waited for the main column to catch up with them. As they began their advance toward Trenton, they found the American advance force waiting for them at Five Mile Creek. General Fermoy, who commanded the Continental forces there, saw the enemy approaching and executed what I like to call a French charge. This is a maneuver where an officer mounts his horse, turns it around so that the tail of the horse is facing the enemy, then spurs the horse to flee from the field in a panic. Fermoy galloped away toward Trenton without saying a word, leaving his brigade without its commander. The soldiers were stunned, but second-in-command Colonel Edward Hand from Pennsylvania immediately assumed command, assisted by Major Henry Miller from Maryland. The men ambushed the British advance guard, forcing them to retreat in disarray back to the main column. American artillery forced the British column to stop and form a line of battle. Now, the American force was clearly outnumbered against Cornwallis's entire army and never expected to do anything but delay the British advance. They held the British at bay for about two hours before British flanking maneuvers threatened to surround them. They then pulled back in good order to another defensible position about a quarter of a mile down the road. There, they halted the British column a second time. When overwhelming forces moved in on their position again, the group just moved further south to a place called Stockton Hollow, just on the northern outskirts of Trenton. Again, they delayed the British column before Colonel Han and his men fell back once again. The British and Hessian forces marched into Trenton from the north, the same route taken by the Americans in the First Battle of Trenton. There was some street fighting in town as the Americans fell back. The men retreated through Trenton to reach the main continental lines just south of Trenton on the other side of Assenpink Creek. General Knox's 30 cannons opened up an artillery barrage on the British and Hessians as they began to occupy the town. General Cornwallis ordered his own larger cannon into position and returned fire. There, an artillery duel lasted about 30 minutes. A Colonel Hand's delaying tactics had done what they needed to do. They kept the British from reaching Trenton until just before sundown. The British and Hessians took control of Trenton, where there was some infantry fighting in the late afternoon. Hand's brigade made a fairly orderly retreat through town along with a few regiments that Washington had sent across the creek to support their retreat. The Hessians did manage to capture one unarmed chaplain who had lingered a little too long in a Trenton tavern. Taking no prisoners, they robbed the man, stripped him naked, forced him onto his knees, and then bayoneted him to death. 
Most of the Americans, though, retreated out of town across the bridge over Assunpink Creek. To make sure the retreat did not turn into a panic, General Washington personally rode down to the bridge and directed his men across, pointing them to their positions in the main continental line. At this point, it was about sundown, but the British and Hessians continued to probe the line for points of weakness. But finding that Washington had deployed his troops and artillery to cover the bridge, and any fords along the river where the enemy might cross. The British and Hessians made four attempts to take the bridge that evening, but were driven back with heavy casualties each time. The British did not bother to report their casualties, but the Americans estimated that the killed, wounded, or captured to be at least 500. Most estimates put this a little lower, maybe 350 to 400, including those shot during the march to Trenton, as well as the fighting in town and on the bridge. The Americans themselves took only about 50 casualties that day. With nightfall, both sides settled down. They continued to fire their cannons all night. Cornwallis decided against a nighttime infantry attack, though. Many of his men had marched about 70 miles in two days and had been involved in a running battle for most of the day. Cornwallis kept his men along the banks of the creek without fires, where they could keep an eye on the Americans and prevent the enemy from making any advances to identify their positions. Cornwallis then deployed his army into positions for a dawn raid. American scouts reported on these deployments. Cornwallis held another council of war with his other officers, including Grant, Sterling, Leslie, and Erskine. They discussed the option of a night raid, but Cornwallis opted for a dawn attack once all of his forces were positioned where he wanted them. He also wanted to bring in more artillery overnight from Princeton. A night attack on unfamiliar terrain with exhausted troops just held too many risks. They would finish the job in the morning. Next week, Washington opts not to let Cornwallis finish the job at Trenton, but instead dashes off to fight the Battle of Princeton. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. They even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com slash ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. 
as I'm releasing this episode over Thanksgiving weekend, it seems appropriate to say thanks to everyone who has listened to the show. Many of you have opted to support the show financially on Patreon, and that's a big help. I also very much appreciate everyone who has left a five-star review on iTunes or anywhere else that allows reviews and comments. Even just being a faithful listener makes me grateful. I have one other announcement this week. Some of you may have already noticed an advertisement at the beginning of the show. Scott Rank, host of the podcast History Unplugged, is the show's first sponsor. I met Scott at a podcasting convention a couple of years ago. His podcast covers a wide range of topics from any point in history and all over the world. I've been enjoying his podcast personally for a couple of years now and can heartily recommend it. As for my decision to add advertising at all to the American Revolution podcast, I've been reluctant to use it only because I know that ads can be annoying. However, they are necessary if the show's ever going to be able to support itself. For now, I'm limiting the ads to ones that I read, so you won't be subjected to any annoying voices or jingles. I won't put them in the middle of an episode, although the spot between the main show and the after show may be fair game. And most importantly, I'm only accepting ads that I think are relevant and of interest to you. Things related to history. No, you know, insurance or detergent ads. I hope this makes them a little more palatable. If you still don't like ads, you can subscribe to Patreon for as little as $2 a month and get a private RSS feed that allows you to listen to all episodes, both old ones and the new ones, completely ad-free. So that is still an option. Anyway, it's a big change for me, and that's what's happening. You're probably not listening to hear me talk about podcast advertising, though. You want to hear more about the revolution. This week, the Empire Strikes Back. After Washington's raid on Trenton, General Cornwallis leads the large army south to southern Jersey, or West Jersey as they called it at the time, to reconquer the area for the king and the British Empire. Now, remember, Cornwallis is really ticked off that his plans to go home for the winter were canceled. For up-and-coming officers, winter campaigns were important times to go home and brown nose with the ministry to get promotions. Probably more importantly to Cornwallis, his wife was sick and he hoped to spend some time with her. So, when he got recalled just as he was about to board a ship for London, he was not happy. That may be why he opted for a direct assault in a single column directly to Trenton. He wanted to smash the rebels hard and fast so he could put an end to any winter campaign. Cornwallis, of course, would discover that hitting the Americans was much like punching jello. Of course, they didn't have jello at the time, but the analogy works today. He could force them to move, but he could never actually smash them. If he moved away, they would just move back in. General Washington was figuring this out. He realized that he really had a hard time winning a traditional field battle, but he could make the British miserable every time they marched anywhere, and he could harass them when they were in their camps. I've already been chastised by some friends for calling this the Second Battle of Trenton rather than the Battle of Assunpink Creek, which is the name of the creek just south of Trenton where the British hit the main American lines. However, I did this deliberately, as I think the stalling action just north of Trenton and into the city itself was critical to the success of the day. 
Whatever you choose to call the battle, it sometimes gets lost between the surprise victory at the First Battle of Trenton and the Battle of Princeton that we are going to cover next week. That's why I'm pleased to recommend a book that really focuses on this battle. It's called The Road to Assenpink Creek by David Price. Mr. Price has been a historical interpreter at Washington's Crossing and Princeton Battlefield for many years. He has acquired a lifetime of knowledge about the local history and specifically about these events. His book does cover the days before and after, but it gives special focus to the battle on July 2nd. It's not too long at 288 pages and really gets into some interesting details about the day. If you want more details specifically about the Second Battle of Trenton, The Road to Assenpink Creek is the book you want. For my online recommendation this week, I'm recommending an ebook available at archive.org. It's called Rosebrew, A Tale of Revolution by Reverend John Klein. The subject of this short biography is the Reverend John Rosebrew, the minister who I mentioned in this week's episode, who was bayoneted to death by the Hessians while trying to surrender in the town of Trenton. The biography was written by a pastor who took over the same church where Rosebrew had been minister a century earlier. It's a short book, under a hundred pages, but it provides an interesting insight into the life of a man who gave his life for his country. As always, I have included a direct link to the ebook on my website at amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.